Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am going to cover 2 Corinthians 11 through verse 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 through 33. The rest of the second half of 2 Corinthians 11. Our context is this: in 1 Corinthians 10 and the first half to 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is. Been, has been vehemently defending himself as an apostle. He's going to continue with that in this section of the scripture. We start with verse 16, 2 Corinthians 11. Paul says this, I repeat, no one should consider me a fool, but if you do, at least accept me as a fool, so I too may boast a little. Now consider this, no one should consider me a fool. Paul says, no one should think Paul was a fool for praising himself because he's been praising himself in the previous verses talking about what a qualified apostle he is. And, of course, Paul considers that normally foolish boasting, but here, hey, it's not foolish. I have to do it to defend my apostleship. And so he says, I repeat. He's repeating what he said in verse 1, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1. I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. Yes, do put up with me. Paul's being a little sarcastic here. And so he's saying, I repeat. But now, instead of being sarcastic and ironic, he says, no, don't consider me a fool. I'm not a fool. I know what I'm talking about. But if you're going to insist on doing that, if you're going to accept, at least accept me as an idiot, as a fool, boasting about himself. And if you'll do that, Paul says, I'll boast. I'll tell you what kind of an apostle I am. So Paul is saying, if you think I'm a fool for boasting improperly, well, then at least hear what I'm boasting about. You will see that I'm boasting accurately. We go to verses 17 through 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. What I say in this matter of boasting, I don't speak as the Lord would, but foolishly. Since many boast in an unspiritual way, I will also boast. Now again, Paul's apologizing for having to boast. He said, normally I wouldn't speak this way as the Lord would. The Lord wouldn't talk like this, but I've got to, to defend my apostolic ministry. And he says that I'm boasting in the Lord, but there's many other people that I'm opposing in Corinth. They're boasting in an unspiritual way, or as the NIV puts it, in the way the world does. He's fighting fire with fire. They're going to boast. I'm going to boast. Now, they're boasting in an unspiritual way through external things, as John Gill mentions, things like their high birth and parentage, perhaps, their circumcision. We are Jews. We circumcise. We are learned. We have a lot of education, all that kind of stuff that people do. Now, one comment before we leave these two verses. In verse 17, when Paul says, I don't speak as the Lord would, but foolishly, some people, believe it or not, say that this argues against the inspiration and it, and inerrancy of the scriptures. That's nonsense. That's obviously nonsense. I'm not even going to bother to refute it. But I will mention it here to show you how often people will look for any excuse to tear down the scriptures. He's telling in advance. He's speaking ironically or foolishly. That doesn't mean he's not inspired. It just means he's not speaking literally, non-ironically. That's all it means. It doesn't mean that he's not inerrant when he speaks. Second Corinthians 11, verse 19, Paul says, For you, being so wise, gladly put up with fools. All right, and that's the same sarcasm that Paul was using in verse 4. Paul tells the Corinthians there, For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit, which you had not received, or a different gospel, which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. In other words, you tolerate it. You tolerate things great when it's stupidity. You tolerate stupidity. And this shows that it's not wise to tolerate foolishness and stupidity. You can't tolerate stupidity. You can't tolerate false doctrine that's going to tear down people's spiritual lives. And so Paul is saying here, well, you put up with all these fools that are trying to seduce you away from the truth. So how about put up with me a little bit? 
They put up with the disgraceful treatment they had received from the false teachers, as the NIV Study Bible says. They were paying money to hear empty-headed nonsense. <laughs> so, what's an application of this? It is a church's responsibility to refuse to listen to garbage. It's not only the teachers and the elders' responsibility to guard the flock. It's also the flock's responsibility to not listen. Paul says, for you being so wise. Here's the point of Paul's sarcasm. You guys are so wise that you put up with a fool like me. That's kind of ironic. What kind of wisdom did you have? Well, excuse me. You're so wise, and yet you put up with the foolishness of the false apostles. So how about be wise and listen to me? So in other words, he's saying, ironically, it would be, you're wise by saying, thinking you're wise listening to fools. But how about really be wise and listen to me? We go to verse 20, 2 Corinthians 11. In fact, you put up with it if someone enslaves you, if someone devours you, if someone captures you, if someone dominates you. Or someone hits you in the face. Sounds like a, an abused wife putting up with an abusive husband in a domestic violence situation. And it is amazing how people will do this. I've seen, I know a church that the pastor was a tyrant, an idiot. God actually killed somebody and confessed to it in the, pup, in the pulpit. And the people just kept right on, right on following him like he was a guru. So I've seen that. And it's happening to the Corinthians. How did the false teachers enslave the Corinthians, as the NIV Study Bible says, with tyrannical, tyrannical legalistic, man-made regulations and laws? These false teachers were Judaizers at least, maybe even Jews, but maybe they were Christians who were trying to adopt legalism for salvation. Paul is very serious about this slavery thing, that legalism and slavery, it goes together. Galatians 5.1, Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Again, a yoke of slavery, of course, is the law, keeping the law without the power of Christ or keeping legalistic additions to the law. Galatians 4.9, but now since you know God or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and bankrupt elemental forces? Elemental is stoichia, which means law, legal, to the weak and bankrupt forces of the law. Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? Paul tells the Galatians, your legalism is causing you to be slaves. And these false teachers, Paul says, they dominate you in 2 Corinthians 11.20. They dominate you. Now, to me, this is a good application for charismatics who put up with tyrannical nonsense. I was involved with charismatics for a long time, and I saw their church life. I saw these prima donna pastors who don't have any elders to check them, these fundraising marvels who go around and, and they speak so eloquently, but they're unchecked. They're tyrants. Now, you know, a Baptist does that, or a Presbyterian, somebody can check them, but not the charismatics. Because there's one man show and leave me alone because I know what I'm talking about. Adam Clark says this idea about being dominated. Clark says this is, quote, to submit to be brought into bondage, to have your property devoured, your goods taken away, yourselves laid in the dust so that others may exalt themselves over you. Why would anybody want to do this? Unfortunately, there's something, it's almost like the feminine psychology Christians a lot of times have that psychology. They got a guru, he's telling them what to do, he's making them feel safe, he's making them feel loved, he's making them feel secure, and therefore you just check out your freedom and say, take care of me. People will trade security for freedom anytime. Look what's happening here in the coronavirus. Political leaders all across the country are saying, you can't work, you have to go bankrupt because we're all going to die from the coronavirus. And people will put up with that because they're scared. Well, the Corinthians were putting up with something that normally you wouldn't think. I mean, put up with somebody hit, hitting you in the face? 
Now, the NIV study Bible says that that's actual physical violence. I don't believe that. I don't believe the. I don't believe that. I don't believe the false teachers were actually slapping them in the face. But he was speaking metaphorically, as Gil says. But nonetheless, why would you put up with somebody hitting you in the face? Why don't you say, hey, buddy, get out of here. I know how hard it is to do that against religious authority. I've had to do it. I've been kicked out of religious organizations. I've been blacklisted. I've had people come tell my mother that I was imparting the power of the devil into people. I've had Christian leaders have said the most ridiculous things about me. And I refuse to put up with it. And I don't fight a war over it. I just leave and say, fine, you want to say about that, that about me? Go right ahead. I'm out of here. I ain't listening to you anymore, and I'm not subject to you. I think that's the smartest thing to do. I don't think you ought to try to stop them, really, and get involved in a big war. It's not worth the trouble. But that's the way it is out there in Christian church land, unfortunately. See how they love one another, as Jesus said. Second Corinthians 11, verses 21 through 22. I say this to our shame. We have been weak. Now, of course, Paul is using the editorial we here. The NIV study Bible gets rid of that editorial we and just puts I in there. But I'm going to use the Holman Christian Study Bible. I say this to our shame. We have been weak. I, Paul, have been weak. But in whatever anyone dares to boast, I am talking foolishly, I also dare. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. So am I. So these Jews were joking, were surely teaching about how what great Jews they were, what great rabbis they were. So we need to follow the traditions of the Jews and keep the law and all that. And Paul says, hey, there ain't nobody here in Corinth is more Jewish than I am. I can imagine you got a predominantly Gentile church in Greece. you got a religion, Christianity, that's coming out of Judaism. I can see why they might be susceptible to the blandishments of Jewish teachers. People might think, well, you know, we're Greeks and they're Jews. They ought to know what they're talking about. I mean, after all, Jesus was Jewish and his religion comes right out of Judaism. And so they were enslaving them with their law. And Paul says, well, look, they're Jews, but I'm Jews too. And I'm telling you, you need to be free from the law. Now, Paul says, we've been weak. There's a question, is, is he being sarcastic here? Weak, being said, hey, I'm weak compared to these big shot super apostles, but he doesn't really mean it. Or he could, he could be speaking straight, literally. I've been weak because I've been in all kinds of persecutions and afflictions, which he's getting ready to talk about. But at any rate, compared to the crude, self-seeking roughness of the impostors, Paul's conduct was weak. Now, these false teachers who were Hebrews, they felt they were superior to Gentiles, as the NIV Study Bible says, because the Jews had the law, and all the Jews had all those Jewish man-made regulations. And so they were probably saying, we know what we're talking about, you Gentiles. You need to bow and scrape down. Adam Clark says, quote, speaking the sacred language and reading in the congregation from the Hebrew scriptures. Oh, what big shots. They could speak Hebrew and, and the Greeks can't. Well, Paul is going to counter all that Jewish superiority by saying, hey, you think they're superior Jews, these false apostles? Well, hey, guess what? I'm Jewish too. Now, look at what the scriptures say about Paul being a Jewish, being Jewish. He was never ashamed of it. Acts 22, verse 3. He, Paul, continued. This is Paul before the Jerusalem mob after the third journey. Paul continued, I am a Jewish man born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, a well-known Jewish rabbi, and educated according to the strict view of our patriarchal law, being zealous for God just as all of you are today. So Paul appealed to a Jewish crowd with his Jewishness. Now, when he was before Herod Agrippa II at Caesarea, this was shortly thereafter, he did the same thing, Acts 26, 4 through 5. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem. For since he was a little boy, Paul, 
probably moved from Cilicia to Jerusalem, and he was Jewish. They had previously known me for quite some time, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest part of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. So not only was he Jewish, he was a strict Jew, a Pharisee. And then we read in Philippians 3, 4 through 6, Paul says this, Although I once also had confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day, like a good little Jewish boy, of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was especially prestigious back then. A Hebrew, born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee. Strictest, strictest sect of the Jews was the Pharisees. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. He didn't have any true righteousness before God, but in the sense of righteousness and keeping the law. That word righteousness is used ambiguously all the time. You have to be careful how you use it. But this legal righteousness, Paul said he was blameless as far as that concerned. So he was Jewish to the core. And so he appeals to that here in order to deal with his Jewish opponents. Now, let's look at this word, this. Paul says in verse 21, 2 Corinthians 11, I say this to our or to my shame. What does the this refer to? Whenever you see that, it either refers to what he just said previously or what he's getting ready to say. I think he means here what he's getting ready to say. I say this, colon, we've been weak. This is what's to our shame. I've been boasting. I've been talking foolishly. And that's why he's ashamed, because he has to boast. He doesn't like to boast. That's one option. Here's another option. He's ashamed of what he just talked about before. He's ashamed that he was so weak compared to the strong, false apostles. If we go, this is Jameson Fawcett and Brown's idea, if we go back to verse 20, the previous verse, we read this. In fact, you put up with it, you put up with it if someone enslaves you, if someone devours you, if someone captures you, if someone dominates you, if someone hits you in the face, I say this to our shame. In other words, I'm ashamed that my church has put up with this nonsense, this abuse, this spiritual abuse. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed that I've been so weak and not been able to stop it. I don't think so. I think he's just ashamed that he has to boast so much. We go to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Are they, that means his opponents, the false apostles, the false Judaizers, are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one. Of course, he's talking like a madman. Well, there's some options here. He could be thinking that he's talking like a madman. He's, he's, he's a madman for even thinking that the false apostles are true servants of Christ. This is the NIV Study Bible answer. Are they servants of Christ? Hey, you've got to be a madman to think that they're servants of Christ. That could be. The other option is, are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one. He has to start boasting. He's talking like a madman because he's got to start bragging about his apostleship. I think that's the better answer. Although either could be. I'm, I can't complain. So Paul is a madman to boast so much about his his apostleship. Now that leaves open the possibility that that the Jewish opponents false apostles are servants of Christ, but he's a better servant of Christ. That leaves the possibility, but I don't think so. He says so many bad things about him. He doesn't sound to me like they're servants of Christ. How could it be that they were servants of Christ if we leave that option open? Adam Clark says, quote, so we find that these were professors of Christianity and that they were genuine Jews and such as endeavored to incorporate both systems and no doubt to oblige those who had believed to be circumcised. In other words, they were Christians who were Judaizers. They were legalistic Christians like Paul had to deal with all the time. Legalists can be two kinds. They can be unbelieving Jews, or they can be Judaizers who profess Christ, but who add law-keeping to the belief in Christ and say you've got to believe in Jesus and the law. So he's kind of, a, I guess, a capital L legalism and a little L legalism, both of which, however, 
are condemned by Paul. The Judaizers who professed Christ but who had law-keeping were those that had to be dealt with at Antioch in Jerusalem during the time of the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15. But at any rate, whoever these people were, Paul says, if they're servants of Christ or if they're not servants of Christ, it doesn't matter. I'm a better servant of Christ. When he says, I'm a better one, it sounds like, yeah, they're servants of Christ. So is he talking ironically? Is he talking literally? I don't think we can really tell here. Doesn't matter. He has a lot of opposition, and this he's going to start talking about how he's a better servant of Christ, and he's and he's tempering what he's going to say by saying, "Well, I'm sort of crazy for bragging like this, but I've got to." Now, I'm glad that these false apostles gave Paul a hard time because now we get a feel for what it was like to be an apostle. Exhibited as last of all in the triumphal procession, he's <laughs> exhibited last of all as a slave before the world. All right, so let's look at how he was a better apostle. Far more laborers. He worked harder than the rest of them. Many more imprisonments. For example, at Philippi in Acts chapter 16, he was imprisoned. In Jerusalem, Acts 21, he was imprisoned there too. He ended up spending two years in Caesarea, then over into, into Rome. He was a prison. He was a prisoner. Beatings, Paul says. The beating that's mentioned that's mentioned the most he was in the next verse we see five times he received 39 lashes from the jews that's not recorded anywhere in acts and the beatings that he describes here is plural there was one recorded in acts 16 verses 22 through 23 that was at philippi on the second journey then the mob joined in the attack against them and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods now beaten with rods is serious business that's a stick the jews would whip you with Leather thongs, which I don't think would be very nice, but beaten with rods. I'm not sure which was worse, but the Romans did it with rods. The Jews did it with leather whips, maybe with some bone attached at the end of the thong, leather thongs. After they had inflicted, this is the the uh, Romans, and inflicted many blows on them, Paul and Silas, they threw them in jail and ordered the jailer to keep them secretly guarded. guarded. So Paul was beaten, and he says, even worse. Paul says, well, let me see that verb worse here far worse beatings. Paul says, I have had far worse beatings than the false apostles. There's actually no instance of a false apostle having been in prison or beaten anywhere, as Adam Clark points out. So Paul's very confident in his assertions here. Now at the end of verse 23, Paul mentions that he had been near death many times. He almost died. Now he means this literally. He's not speaking metaphorically here. We read this verse in the following ones, and we see that his troubles were actually life-threatening. Now, the catalog of Paul's suffering listed here in these Second Corinthians passage shows that Luke and Acts didn't list all of the troubles that Paul had, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Well, let's look at some of the passages that talk about how Paul almost died. And I've got lots of scriptures here. I'll go through them quickly. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 11, We are pressured in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body. For we who live are always given over to death because of Jesus. And I think what he means is that he was getting almost ready to die. 2 Corinthians 1, 8, For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life. Now, people debate exactly what instance that referred to in Ephesus that Paul's talking about, but the point is, is he thought he was going to die. Acts 9, 23, After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him. That's, that's in Damascus. 
Acts 14, 5, when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews, and this is at Iconium on the first journey, the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers attempted to assault and stone them at Iconium. They attempted, they didn't actually do it, but they tried to do it. Acts, but if they had succeeded, it would have killed them. Acts 14, 19, second half of the verse, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. This is at Lystra, where Jews from Antioch and Iconium came on the first journey, and they came... And they came and stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, out of Lystra, supposing that he was dead. So he was almost dead there because they thought he was dead. Acts 17:5. This is at Thessalonica on the second journey. But the Jews became jealous and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's home, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. Bring Paul and his fellow apostle there. Acts 17:13. but when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that God's message had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and disturbing the crowd. So the Jews tracked Paul down all the way from Thessalonica to Berea. So Paul was near death many times. He could have easily gotten killed, except God supernaturally protected him. We go to 2 Corinthians 11:24. Five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. Now the Jews would punish, whip, lash, According to the law, Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 3, if there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. In other words, just because he's guilty doesn't mean he's not a human being. you got to treat you got to respect the image of God in him so you don't beat him to a pulp to where he almost dies or dies. But now you notice Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 25.3 said 40 stripes may be given, but the Jews only administered 39 stripes or 39 lashes. Why was that? A couple of options. One, the most common reason given, as Jameson Foster and Brown says, is because the Jews wanted to be careful that they did not miscount and go over the limit and thus break the law. You know, the Jews don't want to break the law now. Or Adam Clark says another reason they might have stopped at 39 was to pretend that they were being lenient to the prisoner and say, look at us, how merciful we are. We gave you 39 instead of 40. Well, that's an interesting idea, but I don't think that's the real reason. I think is they wanted to be careful not to go over the 40 limit. Now, there's some differences of, degree, of opinion on how they did this scourging. Apparently, they used three cords, and John Gill says that each whipping counted for three strokes because there was three cords, so that would be 13 lashes with three strokes at a time. John Gill says that. Ellicott disagrees with Gill. He says this, quote, The punishment was inflicted with a leather scourge of three knotted thongs and with a curiously elaborate distribution. Thirteen strokes were given on the breast, thirteen on the right shoulder, and thirteen on the left. Well, that's thirty-nine strokes with three thongs with each stroke, Ooh, which makes it a little bit worse. So I don't know who's right with that, but I don't think it really matters. It's not pleasant. And five times he did this. There, there, by the way, there's no account anywhere of Paul receiving these whippings, not in Acts or anywhere else in the in the New Testament. Now, Adam Clark points out the Jews did not repeat scourging, scourging except for enormous offenses. In other words, once you got nailed once, they usually let you alone. But Paul got picked on five times. They were really upset with his alleged blasphemy. They must have thought he was very, very evil. Second Corinthians 11, verse 20, 25 
Paul continues with his sufferings. Three times I was beaten with rods. Now, that would be the Romans doing that. Only once is recorded at Philippi, Acts 16. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Well, let's take them one at a time. I've already mentioned beating with rods and acts at Philippi. This was done despite the fact that Paul was a Roman citizen. As such, he was supposed to be legally protected from scourging by rods, and they got him anyway. Of course, they eventually ruined. They realized he was a Roman citizen. They went to him and said, I'm so sorry, Paul. I'm so sorry, Silas. And they said, please leave town. And Paul goes on to see Lydia. So <laughs> that had a happy ending, but think about how much that must have hurt. And he's a Roman citizen. You never beat a Roman citizen. Boy, if they had ever gotten those magistrates for beating a Roman citizen, they would have been in a world of trouble. Paul says, once I was stoned, this was the traditional manner of Jewish execution. Now, this happened at Lister, the one time that Paul was stoned. This is according to John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown. In Acts 14, 19, we read this. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. This is on the first journey. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, either the crowds or the Jews, I'm not sure which, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Pretty serious business to be stoned to the point of death. Paul says in this verse in 2 Corinthians 10.25 that he was shipwrecked. He was shipwrecked. Now, it's not clear whether he was shipwrecked and a night and a day he, he was adrift at sea. Is that Did that occur on one of those three shipwrecked occasions, shipwreck occasions? Or is it another time when he was adrift a day and a night? I think it included. It sounds to me like it was included in the three times doesn't really matter. The point is, and this, by the way, is not talking about the famous shipwreck he had leaving Jerusalem going to Rome at the end of the third journey because we're still in the middle of the third journey at Corinth. He's writing to Corinth, 55 AD. This is before he got shipwrecked going to Rome. So he could say, if he could see the future, he would say three times over shipwrecked, and I'm getting ready to get shipwrecked again. Now think about that, a day and a half floating around on the ocean. I don't think they had sharks in the Mediterranean. But still, a day and a half floating around on a board, I don't know how in the world he got rescued. That's not pleasant. No food, no water. I assume he was hanging on a board. Maybe he was on a ship's boat, a little dinghy. I don't know. But the point is, he could have easily died. How many times did Paul, God, save his life? Finally, Paul, of course, did get killed. He lived a very, very dangerous life. But boy, what a life he lived. He was doing all this so he could be an apostle, so he could start the Corinthian church. He's trying to say, look what I've done for you guys, you ingrates. We go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. Paul continues with his sufferings. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, that's the Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false prophet brothers. He lived a life that was full of danger. Sort of you know, I complain because i got to go buy groceries and gas in the middle of the coronavirus outbreak. That's a little dangerous, right? It doesn't hold a candle to what Paul had to go through. Now, he mentions in danger from rivers. That's, of course, in addition to the dangers he's already mentioned in verse 25, which we just finished going over. He had dangers from his own people because the Jews bore a quote-unquote implacable hatred of Paul, as John Gill puts out. Remember, Jesus had predicted that the Jews would persecute the apostles from town to town, and they were doing it. Matthew 22:34. this is while Jesus is still alive, and he says this, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and that's just the Jewish way of saying I'm sending you the apostles and the evangelists and the teachers, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Notice that some of you, there's no telling why some Christians get martyred and some survive. There's no way you're going to ever figure that one out. 
But the persecution will be there. Jesus predicted it, and it was happening to Paul. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. From town to town. Now Paul says he received danger from Gentiles. They didn't like Paul inveighing against idols, because Gentiles loved idols. The classic example of this is at Ephesus on the second journey recorded in Acts chapter 19, where, you remember, Paul killed the silversmith's idol maker's trade. They started a riot and rant. And we're great as Diana the Ephesians in the in the amphitheater there at Ephesus. Caused a big uproar. Paul says he was in danger from false brothers. That could be Judaizers. They could be apostates, people who formerly possessed professed Christianity and then left the faith. The Judaizers, who were, who were maybe believers who then wanted to add the law onto conditions for salvation. And that's why they were in the church. Or it could be they were total hypocrites. They weren't really believers, but they were hypocritical Jews pretending to be Christians. And they joined churches as spies. That's Adam Clark's suggestion. Whoever. They were false brothers. Those false brothers could be either Gentiles or Jews, I would say. False Christian brothers, not false Jewish brothers. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, whether he's in town or out of town. Danger at sea, he says. Here's some examples from John Gill. He was shipwrecked. He could have been attacked by pirates. He could have been used ill by mariners who charged him too much for a trip or who abused him emotionally on a trip as he was traveling. Maybe he didn't have any provision. He didn't have enough food to go on the trip. Or maybe he was in danger of shipwreck because the coast around the Mediterranean Sea were dangerous. They didn't have compasses back then, so they had to hop from coast from port to port along the coast. One little minor translation point where Paul says at the end of verse 26, danger at sea, danger at sea, that he faced that sea could be, in fact, the King James Version translated, translates it as waters, dangers with waters. So that could mean rivers. There was great danger in crossing rivers. But the NIV, the ESV, the Holman Christian Study Bible all have sea. So I'm going to assume this is danger on the Mediterranean Sea as he was traveling. But at any rate, that's just to give you a feel for how much danger, how much garbage that Paul had to be put up with. And I just love people say, oh, I want to be a missionary. I want to be a teacher. I want to be an evangelist. Man, you better count the cost because following Jesus ain't easy. Second Corinthians 11:27. Paul continues, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. In toil, that's the same thing as labors that he's already mentioned. The last two verses were about Paul's labors, actually. In verse 27, we're going to be talking about, excuse me, the last two verses were about the dangers that Paul faced, and now he's going to talk about the hard work he did in verse 27. In toil and hardship, now the options for toil or work is joyful fun work, option number one, for example, hunting, hawking, etc., though laborious yet delightful, as one of my commentators said. The other option is it's toil and wearisome toil. Work, like me and G. Krebs used to say, work, bad, something, work is something bad. Gill says that's what it means, in toil, hard work, sweaty work, laborious work. But John Gill then says, but Paul did take much inward spiritual delight and pleasure at the work he was doing, and I think that's true any rate, I think when he says toil here, because everything else is negative around these three verses, I think he's talking about hard work that he would prefer not having to do. And toil and hardship, and you know, it must have been especially hard for Paul, all the hardship he faced, because he was raised a noble, genteel Jew, as Adam Clark points out, and now he is barely keeping himself alive because of all the external pressures he's having to face. Through many a sleepless night, why would he spend sleepless nights? 
Maybe he preached at night. Maybe he prayed at night. Maybe he sang psalms at night. Maybe he had to work at night to provide for his necessities. But at any rate, he wasn't taking it easy. He says, often without food, the King James has in fastings often. Now, that can mean voluntary fast like a religious fast, or it could be because he didn't have any food to eat. And I think it's the the latter. Often without food, not because he was going on a fast, but because he didn't have the food. He didn't have the money to buy the food. Cold, exposure. What a life that this man lived. First, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, the other, the previous three verses were about external dangers and external toil that Paul had to do. Now he's going to talk about the, his mental attitude about all this. He had daily pressure for, uh, because of anxiety for all the churches because the churches were not necessarily flying right and they were attacked by false wolves all the time, false brethren. And Paul had to be concerned about that. John Gill says concerning that term daily pressure, John Gill says there was a prodigious deal of business that was forced upon Paul every day. For example, the continual coming of brethren to him every day for advice and comfort because Paul had to receive and write a multiplicity of letters because he prayed and meditated and read the Old Testament scripture because he had to praise God, he evangelized, he taught, he had tons of things to worry about, typical Christian stuff. Now, because of all this stuff, Paul says, because of all that daily pressure, Paul says he had anxiety. That anxiety for all the churches put daily pressure on him. Well, the first question I have about that is, how do we square this with Jesus' command in the Sermon on the Mount not to worry? Well, this is my answer. I haven't really seen anybody answer this. I, this is one of those examples where, to me, a very obvious question arises and nobody in the commentators has even thought about it, which either means I'm weird or the commentators are lax. I don't know. But this is my suggestion here. I've got a couple of ways to answer this, a couple of options. Option number one, Paul is showing anxiety when he's sinning because Jesus said, don't worry, and he's worrying. And you say, well, but Paul's an apostle, wrote the New Testament, two-thirds of the New Testament. Well, yes, he wrote and he was inspired and inerrant, but his actions and his thoughts were not inspired. That is, an, that is one possibility, but I think that it's a little bit different. The NIV, well, excuse me, the ESV translates this, this word as anxiety. I'm using this verse, I'm using the ESV. My anxiety for all the churches. The NIV has my concern for all the churches. Now, there's a difference between worry and concern. If you have concern for something, that means we've got a problem, we've got to focus on it, we've got to deal with it. That doesn't mean you're necessarily worried about how you're going to deal with it. It just means you're focused on it and got to deal with it. There's nothing wrong with having concern for something. But we use the term worry and concerned in an ambiguous way all the time. I'm worried about my, my child's health. Well, it could be you are perfectly con- know that God's going to take care of your child, but you're concerned about it because you've got to deal with it. You've got to figure out what medicine to give him, what doctor to take him to. Who's, who's going to pray for them and all that kind of stuff. But that doesn't mean you're actually worried about it. It just means you're focusing on it. I think that's the best way to reconcile that. The Holman Christian Study Bible translates that word as care. There's the daily pressure on me of my care for all the churches. And so that sounds more like concern like the NIV. In other words, I think the ESV translation sounds a little strong to me. At any rate, Paul had to worry about, excuse me, not worry about, he had to focus his attention on, he had to care about, he had to be concerned with schism, error, heresies everywhere. Church had a lot of problem with that back then. we got still got a problem with it today, but not as bad as it was back then. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 29, Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? 
who is weak, of course, would be the Corinthians who are being seduced by these false apostles. And Paul says, they're weak, and I'm weak too. I feel the weakness of any Corinthian who is weak. I identify with you. You're stumbling while well, I'm stumbling with you. Paul says, who is made to stumble, I do not burn with indignation. Well, let's talk about, before we go to that, let's talk about Paul being weak. 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So Paul identified with weak folks. 2 Corinthians 12.9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's not going to show his power till his ministers are weak. That's the way he works. More weakness, more power. The weaker Paul got, that's when he had his big visions, when things were really bad. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Second Corinthians 12, verse 9. That's the next chapter. So Paul is conceding to the false apostles that, yeah, he's weak. But hey, because I'm weak, that means Christ is more powerful in me. The power of Christ rests upon me. All right, so Paul says, I'm weak too. But again, he's, he's weak in his flesh, but he's not weak in Christ. The power of Christ rests upon him when he's weak. He says, who is made to stumble, and, and I do not burn with indignation. Of course, stumble. He's talking about Corinthians listening to the false teachers, the false apostles, and then they stumble in their faith. They're no longer walking confidently in the paths, paths of truth. And Paul says, when that happens, I burn with indignation. The NIV says, I inwardly burn. The ESV says, I am indignant. The Oma Christian Study Bible says, I burn with indignation. Kind of combines the NIV and the ESV. Burn with indignation. Here's some options of what he's upset about. He's upset. He's burning with indignation against any person responsible for leading the Corinthians into shame. And I think that's what he's, I think that's what he's talking about. The NIV Study Bible says, he is burning with indignation at the shame of the sin in the Corinthians, which is caused by the false teachers. Uh, burn with indignation at the sin that you Corinthians are committing. Mm, okay, could be both. You'd be mad at the false teachers and mad at the Corinthians. John Gill suggests he's burning with indignation against the shame of Paul doing anything that might cause the Corinthians to stumble. In other words, Paul is burning with indignation at himself that he might have done something to not protect the Corinthians. I think that's a stretch. Adam Clark says he's burning with zeal to restore and confirm any who may have sinned. Of course, that would not be burning with indignation, but that would be, I inwardly burn with the desire to restore and confirm any who may have sinned. I think that's also a stretch by Adam Clark. I think it's easy easier to interpret this this way. I am burning with indignation against any person responsible for leading the Corinthians into shame and sin. We go now to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Paul must, he has to. Yeah, well, he has to. He's been forced to, so he must boast. But he's going to boast not about his earthly accomplishments, his skill in speech, his education and such. He's going to boast about the weaknesses that he has, the weaknesses when he's floating around on the ocean for a day and a half, when he's been beaten and whipped and scourged and imprisoned and stoned. That's what he's going to talk about. Because his weakness opens the way for him to experience the superabundant grace of Christ, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. Now, I just said that his weaknesses were all those afflictions and persecutions that he had, the beatings, the stonings, and imprisonments, and so forth. John Gill agrees with that. However... There are some people, in fact, many people, who have affirmed this opinion, according to Adam Clark. Clark denies it. 
But many people say that Paul is talking about his sins here. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my sins. Ah, uh-uh, I don't believe that. Adam Clark says this is a, quote, most unholy interpretation. I agree with that. Now, Clark does a little word study on the word for weakness, asthenia. It is difficult to produce one instance where that Greek word means sin or moral corruption, Adam Clark says. Here's some examples. He said the word is used for weak, uh, a, well, the adjective form. Adjective form means weak, infirm, sick, poor, despicable through poverty, but not sinful. In a few cases, it applies to weakness of faith. It applies to young converts who are poor in religious knowledge. It is never applied to inward sin and inward corruption. And to finish up, Adam Clark says this, quote, The gentle term infirmity softens down the iniquity, his weakness, his infirmity. It's not iniquity. And so, and as St. Paul, so great and so holy a man, say they had this infirmities, how can they expect to be without theirs? In other words, people are using that for an excuse. Hey, the great apostle Paul, Paul, he was full of sin, so I can be full of sin too, and please pass the plate and keep paying my salary. No, 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 no. Adam Clark continues, These should know that they are in a dangerous error, that St. Paul means nothing of the kind, for he speaks of his sufferings and of these alone. Not his his sins, his sufferings. Now Paul, later, three verses later, is going to boast about his weakness. He's getting ready to. That was when he had to be let down in a basket from the walls of Damascus. I mean, if the great teacher has got to escape from a city hidden in a basket, that's weakness. We go now to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 31. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Blessed when used of God means he who is who has been given praise forever, who is to be praised forever. He knows that I'm not lying. Now, what Paul is doing here, he's taking an oath, a solemn oath, as John Gill and Adam Clark say. He does this several times, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 10, in the last chapter, as the truth of Christ is in me. That's an oath. This boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. This boasting that he's not taking money from the Corinthians. Galatians 1.20, And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. So Paul often would call upon God's name and Jesus' name to, to affirm that what he was saying was the truth, which is basically taking an oath. This is good for those who say, you know, taking an oath is wrong. No, taking a false oath is wrong. Taking an oath is... You can read any article on oath-taking. Get on the Internet. There's so many cases where Old Testament saints took oaths. God took an oath. The New Testament, Paul takes oaths. Everybody takes oaths. Nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is when you take one of these phony baloney oaths like, I swear by the temple, but I don't swear by the gold in the temple. And my my oath is valid if I swear by the temple. But if I swear by the gold in the temple... My oath is invalid if I swear by the temple. But if I swear by the gold in the temple, it is valid. And oh, by the way, I didn't swear by the gold in the temple, therefore I'm not going to pay you my debt. That kind of nonsense. Now, when Paul is getting ready to say, I'm not lying, he could be referring to what he said before about all of his afflictions and persecutions. He could be referring to what comes up next, which is 2 Corinthians 11.32, because these things are not generally known, what happened to Paul at Damascus when he first got converted. This was way back in approximately AD 34. We're now at 55. It was, what is that? 55. That's 21 years earlier. It's a long time before. So Paul says this at Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. Now, who is this governor? He's unknown, but who is this King Aretas? King Aretas IV is who he is. He was the father in law of Herod Antipas because he gave his daughter to Herod Antipas, who ruled the northern section of Galilee, basically. 
he ruled that section, and he gave his daughter to, to Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas ditched this daughter of King Aretas IV so he could marry Herodias. When the famous story, remember, Herodias was married to his brother, Herod Philip II, and so he took his brother's wife and married her, then, and then his stepdaughter Salome did a sexy dance and said, what what do I, what, and Herod was so pleased, he said, what can you give me? What can I give you, Salome? And Salome's mother Herodias says, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. You know that story. Well, it all happened after Herod Antipas had ditched Aretas' daughter, and so he was real ticked off about that. He was ticked off. Now, remember, Herod Antipas is a Roman governor. Now, he was a king over the Nabataean Arabs. So if you look down at Jordan on the east of the Jordan River and go down to Petra as you go down toward the Gulf of Aqaba down there, I've been there to Petra. It's a wonderful place. You should go there if you ever get a chance. It's a United Nations cultural United Nations cultural heritage site. And so that's where his headquarters were down there. Well, how did so some people have raised the question, well, how did he end up ruling so far north in Damascus? That's way up there in the northern part of the Arabian Desert, which is extends all the way up to the up to Syria, the northern northern Euphrates River region. How did that happen? Well, I'm going to read you, this is an historical point, and it's a relatively minor one, but people who like to say the Bible's got errors in it like to complain about this, so I'm going to give you the answer here. Here's Adam Clark. This is a question of some importance. Well, I don't know how important it is. He thinks it is. How could Damascus, a city of Syria, be under the government of an Arabian king? Damascus is far north, Petra, and Arabia is far south. It may be accounted for thus. Herod Antipas, who married the daughter of Aretas, divorced her in order to marry Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. I've already mentioned that. Aretas, on this indignity offered to his family, made war upon Herod. He was ticked off, so he war he makes war on Herod Antipas. On Herod, on Herod Antipas, Herod applied to Tiberius for help, the emperor in Rome. The emperor sent Vitellius, who was a future emperor, but he was a general at this time, to reduce Aretas and to bring. Aretas, excuse me, and to bring him alive or dead to Rome. By some means or other, Vitellius delayed his operations, and in the meantime, Tiberius died. So there's a little power vacuum right there in the transition time, and thus, Aretas was snatched from ruin. This is according to Josephus. Now, what Aretas did in the interim is not known, but it is conjectured that he availed himself of the then favorable state of things, made an eruption into Syria, and seized Damascus. And that's how he ended up being in charge in Damascus. Jameson Fawcett Brown, discussing the same issue, says that Damascus was in a Roman province. But at this time, A.D. 38 or 39, three years after Paul's conversion, which was about 36, and I said 34, it's, you know, nobody knows for sure, Aretas, against whom the emperor Tiberius, as the ally of Herod Agrippa, had sent an army under Vitellius, I've already mentioned that, Aretas got possession of Damascus on the death of the emperor. Tiberius dies, Aretas marches into Damascus and the consequent interruption of Vitellius's operations. Because the emperor died, Vitellius, Vitellius slowed down and didn't go to Damascus. He had to hang around Rome. Vitellius's possession of Damascus was put an end to immediately after by the Romans. And so, and then uh, the next emperor, Caligula, gave Damascus to Aretas. And the fact that, it, the, that Damascus was not run by Romans in our period here is proved by our having no Damascus coins of Caligula or Claudius though we do have some of their immediate imperial predecessors or successors. So that's an interesting historical detail. That's why Aretas was up there. I've got another question. Is what the commentators didn't answer is, why was Aretas trying to seize Paul in Damascus? We know the Jews were after Paul. Why was Aretas? Well, my speculation is is that 
Aretas was a pagan king, and Paul's teaching a, a gospel of the one God, which was totally opposed to paganism. That might have been why he was after Paul. Or it might be because he knew the Jews were powerful in Damascus, and they were upset with Paul. He figures for civil peace he wants to get rid of this troublemaker who's causing all this uproar, so he wants to get him. Now, Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus, Paul says in Second Corinthians eleven thirty-two. He's guarding the city. How was that? He was guarding the gates. Paul was inside the city. He was guarding the gates to keep Paul from breaking out. Now, I just speculated as to why Aretas was doing this. It actually wasn't King Aretas himself. It was his designated uh, official, the governor under King Aretas. Now, this governor, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, was a Jewish officer to whom heathen rulers gave authority over Jews in large cities where the Jews were numerous, and so that would explain why the governor was after Paul, because it was a Jewish thing against against Paul the Apostle. And I think that probably explains it pretty, 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 pretty well. We go now to verse 33 of 2 Corinthians 11. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. The house was built on the wall of the city, as was often done, and so they went through the house out a back window, let down a basket down the wall, and off he went, escaped this is described in Acts 9, verses 23 through 25. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him so he couldn't leave the city. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And so Paul is finished in chapter 11, talking about all of his hard times, his hard life, that he gladly endured so that he could spread the good news of Jesus Christ. In our next audio, we will take up 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, in which Paul will discuss the visions he had when he was caught up into the third heaven, and also, that's the good news, the bad news was his thorn in the flesh. That's typically how it goes, doesn't it? We have trouble, God gives us great things. We have great things, God lets us have trouble to keep us humble. At any rate, we'll take that up next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one. 